You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So our theme verse that we started last week that we're going to run all the way through Christmas is taken from the Gospel of Matthew where the angel Gabriel, when he came to Mary, who was shocked. And by the way, you know, most people believe most commentators and biblical scholars believe Mary was about age 12. Wow. I cannot imagine, okay? For a lot of reasons, I'm a guy, but also just age 12, right? And that she gets the most profound word from the angel Gabriel to tell her that you're going to be with child and that your child is actually going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and be the son of the Most High, Right, So he shares this passage with her from, the, uh, from Isaiah's prophecy, and it's, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I want us to repeat the profundity of that and the passage together. So let's say this together. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In fact, Emmanuel, we get the word imminent from. Do you know that word? Have you ever heard the word imminent before? That is being real close and upfront. So God is not just transcendent, but he's imminent at the same time. He is both way, you know, the beyond the beyond and above and beyond all creation and, and filling everything in every way. And yet he is so personal and intimate and imminent with us. It just blows me away. Okay. So last week we talked about how God is with us in the valley. And I know we've all gone through valleys. And I think there were a number of us. uh, Thank you for your comments. By the way, when you make comments about a message to me afterwards, um, constructive comments, one way or the other, saying, I didn't get it, or wow, that really touched me. It really helps me in becoming a better presenter of the gospel. Okay, so please consider doing that at times. Let me know if it does impact you, if you felt like God was really speaking to you or not. Because I understand that, okay? But um, so last week we talked about how God was with us in the valley, and a couple people commented on how profound that was. That this time of the year, instead of all the lights and the glitter and the glamour and all the fun stuff, it actually feels like a valley at times because of losses or difficulties or struggles, or you're wondering why you feel left out. Everybody else on Facebook is having a good time, and you are not. We understand that. And so we talked about how God is personally working in you in amazing ways. This week, we're going to talk about an aspect that might seem odd at first, okay? And hopefully after you hear this message a little more, you go like, wow, I never thought about it this way. And yet, wow, isn't that cool that how God is working, okay? And that is the fact that God is with us in our giving. And what I mean by that is God is present in your giving, okay? But what I really mean by that is more profound than you realize, okay? First of all, you are, when you are giving and serving, you are more like Jesus than any other time. But beyond that, that God is actually the one who's working behind the scenes incognito through you, and you're his servant, you're his vessel, you're the one, but he's the one who's actually giving through you. 
Do you get it? He is present with you in your giving. So anytime I am giving, it's God behind me that's actually giving. And I am being used by God. In a prof- it's just really cool, I think, to think that God is divinely using me when I'm serving others and giving of myself in one form or another. Now, um, some people have loved Thrive because we don't talk a lot and have a lot of messages about money and giving. In fact, now, if this is their first or second time here, you're going like, whoa, wait a minute. That's one out of two or one out of three. Um, it's, and one reason is I don't want money and giving as a center because so often a lot, there's a lot of people who are jaded about Christianity because it just seems like one giant pyramid scheme, not much different than other kind of schemes out there. In fact, I don't know if you've ever heard of L. Ron Hubbard, uh, Scientology. He said, you don't get rich writing science fiction, which he did. If you want to get rich, you start a religion. So he did. And you can go up to Clearwater and see they've bought a huge portion of Clearwater, Florida. And it is a total scheme. It's a totally made up thing just to make money. He even admitted that. But I'm sorry to say, in Christianity, I've seen this kind of happen, and you can get preachers who basically are going to preach a prosperity gospel, which is one another pyramid scheme of like, I'm on top, and if you give, then God will give. And if you, you've, you've seen all, I haven't seen too many of these on Facebook or in emails anymore, but we used to get these. If you pass this on, and if you do this, chain letters type stuff. Anybody ever receive one of those chain letters? You're too young to probably have received one of those chain letters. But there's like, put 10 bucks in and send it to these people, and then you will get this many letters. No? Yeah, boy. Pyramid scheme. Just a gimmick. And too much of Christianity has seemed like that. And so we don't talk about it that much, and yet at the same time, there can be a total imbalance if we don't talk about money and possessions, as if we cannot talk about them. As if that's one aspect I'll just let you kind of handle on your own and God's only over. He's actually in the middle of your giving. He's in the middle of your finances. He's in the middle of everything in your life. You know? And here's the reality. I don't know if you... If you would study the four Gospels and all the red letters of Jesus, all the words that he spoke, one-third of them deal with finances, treasures, and money. One third. So he speaks more about money than he does uh, sexuality, etc. Okay? I mean, he speaks more about money and possessions than almost anything because he realizes there's an issue with it in our world. And here's something else that you might not consider, but um, I have recognized finally in my life, I'm old enough to finally get it the last decade or two. But when I was younger, I didn't understand the connection at all. And I was thinking, but I didn't realize this, but there can be really no spiritual, significant spiritual growth in my life if I haven't put my money and my possessions in God's hands. And if I'm just kind of like saying, okay, God, you can have these things, but I'm handling this my way. I'm going to end up staying pretty immature at best, and maybe I'm worshiping something other than God if I've got to have that separate. Now, I know that's kind of harsh, 
But that's part of the reality of why the positive spin is God is in the midst of your giving. God is with you in your giving. God is present in your giving. God is working through you in how you give and serve and pour out of the abundance of what God has given you to others. Okay? So we're going to now look at our passage from 2 Corinthians 9. This is a letter he wrote to a very well-off, know-it-all church. <laughs> okay? And he wrote in this about a group of people he was astonished at. In another place, it was not a well-off, know-it-all church. It was the Macedonians. They lived in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey somewhere. And they were poor and needy and he could have rightly passed over asking them to do anything, and yet they gave beyond their ability to give, is what he said. He was, if Paul is shocked at someone, you know something must be going on, because Paul, I think, had very high standards, and he himself was such a sacrificial person. I cannot imagine him having his jaw drop open when a group of people decided to give freely, but he did to this group in Macedonia. Okay. I think it was Macedonia, right? Macedonia. Yeah. <laughs> so Macedonia actually is not in Asia Minor. Macedonia is actually in Greece. I'm sorry. I messed up. I was thinking of Galatia. So the Macedonians, the Philippian area somewhere, or just north of there. Okay. So let's read this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for this, his inexpressible gift. So today we're just going to make two points and you're going like, what? Where's the three point sermon? Two points. They each have sub points. But the two points are God is present in your giving, which I've mentioned before, and then God is ever-present and ever-giving, okay? But we're going to talk about how God is really present in your giving first. And the fact that you are then God's presence to other people, whether you realize it or not, okay? Now, Martin Luther was the first Protestant reformer 500 years ago who really studied a lot. Of he wrote a lot, and he studied a lot. He was the one who realized there is no such thing as a secular sacred divide. And the, one of the, his big points was called the priesthood of all believers, that everyone is a minister to God, and not just a professional class of clergy or monks or people who were, quote, set aside that did great things compared to everybody else. In fact, that nobody in this ministry here at Thrive is more spiritual than somebody else in what they can do or are doing, and that your 
quote, jobs or occupations or calling in the world is no less spiritual than my job or occupation or calling in this world. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean, wow, that's important, and what you are doing is not. And he put it to the point where he was pushing the envelope and saying, wait a minute, you know, God is present in you. You're kind of, God is incognito when you are doing your job well. And you are actually God's hands and feet in serving others. So he wrote um, a commentary to Psalm 147. And he said this, God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plowing and planting, but he does not want to do so. What else is all our work to God, whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war, in government, but just such a child's performance by which he wants to give his gifts in the field, at home, and everywhere else. There are, these are the masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. He's the one. We're like the actors in a play that are wearing a mask, but God is the one who's actually acting behind all you're doing and you're giving. And you notice he says it's called child's play. It's like, you know how kids play in make-believe? And like they set up kitchens or uh, they set up a store and they're kind of having fun. That's what he's saying. Our work is kind of like that. We think, oh, yeah, of course, we earn everything. We... And God blesses it and all of a sudden uses our child's play in a profound way because he's the giver behind all our giving. He's the doer behind all our doing. He's the reason for it all. Then Martin Luther also said this, God regularly does everything through the ministry of human beings. Sometimes, you've probably seen it, I've seen it, sometimes God, you can see him working directly outside of human intervention or human means. But almost all the time, almost 99.9% .9 of the time, he is using people to do his ministry and healing, in loving, in forgiving, in serving, in caring for. And he's profoundly using you. So God is with you in your giving, and you are God's presence. You are God's presence to others in this world. So... The question isn't really, what would Jesus do in this situation? The question is, what is Jesus doing through you in this situation? Do you understand how that works? What does he want? What is he doing? He's doing exactly what he did in his ministry. He's now doing it through you. He wants the broken people healed. He wants others forgiven. He wants people reconciled and brought together, the outcast welcomed in, the poor having the gospel preached to them, and everyone being transformed by the love and grace of God. And his choice is to use you as his mask, and he stays incognito behind the scenes, and you are God's presence to the world. So this isn't something that you just kind of manufacture. It's like, okay, I'm going to try to do God's work now. It's something you just do in response to all that God gives you and in the callings and places you are. You are the gracious presence of God to the world. Now, so Luther said in another place in the, what's called the freedom of the Christian this, as our Heavenly Father has in Christ freely come to our aid, we also ought to freely help our neighbor through our body and its works. And each one should become, as it were, a Christ to the other that we may be Christ to one another and Christ may be the same in all. That is, that we may truly 
be Christians. We conclude, therefore, that a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and the neighbor. Otherwise, he's not a Christian. I have seen this in numerous ways with numerous people here, how you are serving and giving in, whether you volunteer or you're getting paid by the job to do this, and how you treat the people you are serving and giving that go well beyond what you are doing as a job and a paycheck, and that you are actually doing great things for God, and you are God's presence in those situations. Do you get that? I think we know it distinctively as well. Life is much more full when you're doing it for the sake of giving and serving others than just forgetting and receiving. When life is about how you can give and how you can expend and sacrifice and invest in others and love others and care for others, there's so much more joy in that. When life is just about me consuming and taking and getting and experiencing and having fun for my, it can be very shallow. So God is, first of all, present in your giving. He is with you in your giving. And then secondly, God is ever-present and ever-giving. So this is what Paul says here, which just amazes me. And if you kind of look at the, it's like, I think you use the words a little too often. You know, if, if, an English professor looked at this sentence, they might say, wait a minute, find another word. But look at how many times Paul uses all in this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Look at all the alls. That's the next slide, I think, by the way. That's okay. And then he's got, a, he adds in a couple of bounds, which is the next slide. Isn't that amazing? So it's like, how many superlatives can you put in one sentence? Do you think he's getting a point across? He's giving you everything that you have, everything that you're doing, everything. It's all there for you to be having all things at all times that you may abound in every good work, that you can keep doing great things and you can keep giving of yourself and you keep serving others. And if that wasn't enough, he then adds the next two uh, uh, verses in this letter. He says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way that through all this will produce thanksgiving to God. Countless verses in the Bible also speak about how God is always present, always giving, that when he created the world, he didn't abandon the world and walk away, but he keeps working every day so that everything that happens is because of God. You know? Everything that happens is because of God. You can't, there's anything, you woke up this morning because of God. You're still breathing because of God. You have what you have because of God. Anything that you do is because of God. You can't, if God stopped wanting or giving, you wouldn't be. Isn't that amazing? Now, because that statement is true that God is ever-present and ever-giving, there are two corollaries that we're going to look at. A corollary is because this is true, this is also true. And so the second, the, the first corollary, A, is that you can't really ever outgive God. Do you ever think about that? You can't outgive God. Now, I just recently read um, 
an article by John Horgan in Scientific America, and it was just entitled this, Science Will Never Explain Why There's Something Rather Than Nothing. In other words, science can explain a lot of things about how things are and what they are and certain way why they work. But when they ask the biggest question, which is, why is there anything at all, they're dumbfounded. They don't know how to answer that question. And scientists, when they are really being honest, say, I don't know why there's anything rather than nothing and why we are here. They can answer the questions how and what, but not why. And if you think of all the things in life that we study in the university system, in the school system, in life and what we do, things like sociology and psychology and even philosophy and science and mathematics, they can't answer that question why. Why is there something rather than nothing? When you get down to it, what John Horgan was actually admitting is that life fundamentally is a theological issue, a God issue. And you and everything that exists is here for one reason, because of God. God wanted it. God chose to give, and he created. God chose to give, and he keeps on giving, and that's why it continues to exist. And Horgan kind of admits that nobody's got a better answer than a theologian does, or a little child who believes in God does, to why there is anything. Now, whether God exists and what kind of God exists is the real question of life. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, if you believe that God, okay, he created, but he kind of took off and he let things be the way they are. If you believe God is distant and disconnected and not really interested in your life, then you're going to have a certain way of looking at your life of how you're going to have to take care of yourself and take things to yourself and hold on to things. Right? If you believe that God is all about fairness and justice and in the end he's going to weigh you in the balance and everything else, then you're going to be exacting in life and try to work out a deal with God and with others and make sure everything's negotiated fairly, squarely, even Stephen all the way through. But if you believe that God is ever-present in your life and ever-giving in your life, then you yourself will become generous and giving. So that's what the Macedonians at heart believed about God. It wasn't like they looked at their resources and said, hey, we got plenty of stuff. They actually did not. They were just getting by. That's what Paul says. But they didn't look at their resources. They looked at their God, and they realized he was ever-present and ever-giving, and they wanted to. They compelled Paul that they wanted to give. They forced his hand in taking their gifts to Jerusalem to the other poor people who might have been actually wealthier or better off than they were. Do you get that? Giving was real to them. It was a true sacrifice. It astonished Paul. But they realized the reality of who their God was and would not live any differently than that. 
Now, another corollary to this that not only you can't outgive God is that you're never too poor to be generous. And I know a lot of, you know, from college, I don't have hardly. That's not the issue. You're never too poor to be generous. Doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have. In fact, here's the reality. I don't know if you realize this. In the Bible, some of the most generous people had the least, like the Macedonians. Another example is in Luke's gospel. Um, Jesus noticed, is everybody giving all these gifts at the treasury at the temple? And then he sees this one poor widow. You know what she gives? Do you, anybody know this story? Two mites, all she had into her name. Two. She didn't give one, which would have been a 50% tithe. Just consider that. I'll give one and hold on to one. She gave both. And he said she gave more than everybody else combined. And this is the reality, too. I don't know if you realize the poorest people in any society, and especially in the United States, give a higher percentage of their income than the wealthiest. I don't know if you know that. They might have bigger gifts on the outside, but it's a smaller percentage. Sociologists look at this all the time. And you will find the more money and stuff you have, the less you give away and the more you hold on to it. It's fascinating. And then you wonder what's really running your life. So you don't have to have a lot to be generous. And I remember when I went to Nicaragua for the second trip to Nicaragua with my last church up in Gainesville, Florida. We went down there to start just checking out certain areas to where we might be able to serve along with the Christians in those areas. And the missionary in place down in Nicaragua said, hey, let's go to Santa Patricia. It was the poorest barrio of one of the poorest areas in that country called, uh, the city was it's just outside of Chinandega. It's in, near the Honduran border. And we got there, and what had happened is Hurricane Mitch had come in, I think, 89, and just uh, devastated Nicaragua, sent like 30 inches of rain down in like two days, filled up the calderas of their volcanoes, and then like a dam burst, some of the calderas erupted and just sent down these flash floods across the areas, and 10,000 people were wiped out. So Santa Patricia was populated mainly with widows and orphans who lost um, the breadwinner, if there was a breadwinner in their family. Um, breadwinners in Nicaragua at the time made $2 a day at a factory. And they came to this abandoned cotton field next to a banana plantation and just started setting up houses. And so when we got there, there were about 300 families with dirt floors. Um, borrow, uh, you know, pieces of wood they found off the sides of the road, uh, garbage bags for walls, tin roofs, you know, rusty corrugated tin roofs, and maybe one outlet per place and a hose with a spigot. That was about the most sophisticated of the places. And in the midst of them, uh, just a few years before, a church and a teeny little school was started to be built for these 400 families. So a Christian church was built. And we came in from the United States, from Gainesville, Florida, to just see, okay, my, what might we do there? And I was astonished at how giving they were. 
Someone climbed up a coconut palm tree, broke off the coconuts, took a machete, opened them up. Every one of us immediately got a drink, a coconut drink. Then they passed out cookies somebody had bought with their $2 a day at the store. And then we went into the church, and they had the children of the village, about 30 kids aged, I'd say, 4 to 8, sing, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice in Spanish. And I just lost it. I just lost it. I started crying. We thought we were going to give them something. And they were so generous beyond belief. Do you understand that? I think that happens almost every time um, a mission group goes to uh, Haiti, and you just see the generosity and the lifestyle of the people, and we're just going like, uh, what are we offering them? They have so much that they're giving us. That's generosity. You don't have to have a lot to be generous. But here's the clue. Here's the clue to both the reality of the Macedonians, and I think the Nicaraguans, and the Haitians, and other Christians in this world who don't seem to have much but are very generous. And the clue is this. It's not about the money. It's not about the money. It's about you. It's about them. You see, it was about how they understood who their God was and how they responded to their God. Paul said at the, uh, a chapter earlier in 2 Corinthians 8, he said, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Do you get it? The first thing the Macedonians did is not look at their checkbook if they had one, or they calculate out their finances, or look at their resources, or how much grain and oil and flour they had. They didn't look at um, their, any of the stuff. They looked to their God, and they gave themselves first to him, and then everything else just falls in line. Everything else was a response to first giving themselves to God. It's not about... Your generosity is not about how much stuff you have, nor is it about how you use the stuff that you have. It's really about you. And it's what you believe about your God. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never given yourself to the Lord. And you go like, well, wait a minute, that sounds kind of risky because, I mean, if I give myself over, then I'm, what, do I give up all my freedom to make decisions and choices in life? You know, I'm supposed to just then, whatever? Yeah. Here's the reality you might not want to recognize. You will never be free until you give up your supposed freedom. Because if you... Keep holding on to your choices and making, you know, you're enslaved to your own selfishness and you're being pushed around by whatever you want. The Corinthians themselves had been struggling with all this because they were so full of themselves and so full of knowledge and so full of stuff and so wealthy that it was hard for them to give all that up. And maybe in America, we've got so much that we hold on to so much that it's hard for us to give up. But it's not an option to really be free and to be generous. It's not an option. It's not a luxury. It's not a sidelight. It's all about your relationship to God. When we when I see Christians 
give so freely and willingly and be so hospitable and giving like in Nicaragua or elsewhere, or even I've seen here, I know what's happened first is the person has given themselves fully to God and then to whatever activity or cause or service or need in the community. You will not be free. And you can't separate out this segment of my life from the rest because God hasn't done that with you. Now, can you imagine if you went to the doctor? I'm going to go in a couple weeks for a physical. And if I went to the doctor and I said, you know, doc, I realize I'm out of shape. And my blood pressure is probably up. My cholesterol's through the roof. And I'm pudgy in the middle. I'm Mr. Pudge Pudge. And, I'll, you know, and I know I'm tired and I'm exhausted most of the time. And I'm just stressed out. And I've got almost But don't talk to me about uh, my diet because I'm not going to change anything. And don't talk to me about um, my, um, my physical activity, because I don't want to work out. It's too much work. And that's just too hard. And don't talk to me about changing my bedtime, because nighttime is the only time I have. I'm going to stay up. You know, I'm going to get as little sleep as, but I want you to fix this. You've got to find me a pill. Now, most of us aren't that obnoxious with our doctors. We get the pamphlets. They talk to us. We go, yes, I know. And then we just don't do it anyways. We're kind of passive aggressive with our doctors. I have a feeling a lot of Christians are that way with this whole idea of finances and money and treasures. We kind of go to God and we say, Lord, I really need some forgiveness. I need some peace in my life. Can you give me purpose and meaning and direction and all these wonderful things because that's what I need in my life. But don't talk to me about because this is, I'm not going to change the way I give. Don't talk. I like the fact that I'm in control of these things. I like the fact that I can decide. I like the fact. How is he supposed to respond to that? Just give me kind of a spiritual pill to make my life filled up with things. Just as you can't compartmentalize your health from your lifestyle, you cannot compartmentalize your faith from your finances. Now, Jesus said it this way. He, um, he talked about worry and everything else, and then he finally says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Give yourself first to the Lord, then everything else starts falling into place. It doesn't work any other way. There's no other spiritual principle I can give you. But I don't expect any of us to have just decide, oh, yeah, I'm going to do it, <clears throat> until we realize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ himself. Do you realize that Jesus gave up his freedom? That he became a slave? A doulos, that's the Greek word for slave in the New Testament time and again. He took the position of a servant or slave so that he would bring freedom to you, that he gave up all the treasures that he had rightfully as his own. He poured out himself, became so impoverished that he had nothing to his name, that the last breath he breathed, he breathed for you. Do you realize that the whole cross is God's bank account 
being emptied out of everything because the greatest treasure and the greatest gift he could give was not a bunch of stuff that he made, but himself and his one and dear son for you. He became the lowest so that he could give you the highest place. He doesn't just try to save your soul and care for your body. He doesn't try to uh, just give you an eternity and not care about your present. He doesn't compartmentalize your life and say, this is okay, but that's not. I'm going to just take care of this. He gives all of himself, all that he has, everything he could for all of you. Grace is running through everything. That's the gift. So... Don't bring out the calculator when you decide what you're going to give to Christian ministry, whether it's here or anywhere else. Bring out the cross. Look at what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And then realize you're never too, quote, poor to be generous. That you are never going to outgive God. That God is the one who continues to give and is ever-present and ever-giving in your life. And all of our giving is just in response and trusting him for that. So here at Thrive, we don't do this often. But I think it's important because it really comes down to discipleship again, even here. And whether you are in college and you are spending more money than you are making, because I know every college student is like that, right? Yeah, you've got bills. You can still be generous. Even if you've got children and car payments and you just had this happen and that happen and you've got house payment now and all this, you can still be generous. Because you've got a God who is so generous to you. Isn't that amazing? You can always be a generous individual with your time and your talents and yourselves and all the treasures that you have wherever you are. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you, Lord, for this uh, ministry that we have together, the fact that you are with us in our giving, that you are present in us, that you are using us as your mask, kind of incognito behind the scenes, that you are serving and healing and, and loving this world through everything that we do every day, how we care for our children, how we treat our neighbors, how we look to um, your kingdom growth in this world. We pray, Lord, that you would make us here at Thrive such generous people with whatever we have. It's not really about the amount of money that we have been given, but how we can give in response in proportion to what you've given to us. So make us generous people, Lord. But first, Lord, the greatest gift that we can give is the one that you've given us, our lives, and therefore, we're going to just give them back to you, that we want to be like the Macedonians who give ourselves in response to your grace in our lives first to you and then to your kingdom's work. So that's what we do in Jesus' name. Amen.